Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 4, Episode 2, Room for Contradictions, The Schooling of Chinese Americans. At the time I'm writing this podcast, America is reeling from yet another mass shooting, this time in Atlanta, where a white gunman opened fire at three spas or massage parlors, killing eight people and wounding one other, all of whom were Asian or Asian American. The national conversation about the shooting has situated it within larger concerns about the recent rise in anti-Asian and anti-Asian American sentiment in the U.S. since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. The fact that the first cases of COVID-19 arose in China has served to focus xenophobia against Asians of all ethnicities and origins around the world, particularly in the United States, where President Trump repeatedly referred to the disease of the so-called China virus. Depending on the study and the metrics, the number of racist incidents directed against Asian Americans, mainly Chinese and Korean Americans in particular, since the pandemic began, increased from several hundred to several thousand over the course of 2020, and by June of that year, a Pew Research study found that 58% of Asian American respondents reported a belief that the country had become less safe for them. This is an education podcast, and in narratives about education in the United States, Asian Americans usually appear in the context of model minority myths that weave tales of high-achieving students, particularly in math and science, perhaps overstressed due to intense parental pressure. Like all stereotypes, this one is at best incomplete and at worst highly damaging in its erasure of real students' real experiences. It's hard to know where to start unpacking all of that, but we could always start with the problem of grouping all 23-ish million Asian American and Pacific Islanders together into one block, as opposed to, say, 5.2 million Chinese Americans, 4.5 million Asian Indians, 4.1 million Filipino Americans, 2.2 million Vietnamese Americans, 1.9 million Korean Americans, 1.5 million Japanese Americans, and so on. In one of those many, I can't believe this study actually had to be done sort of things, a representative study of over 4,000 Asian American students by the College Board revealed that, shockingly, factors that influenced academic success for some of these subgroups did not apply to others. For example, about 73% of Korean Americans aged 18 to 24 are enrolled in college, while only 44.3% of those with origins in the Philippines are. These are, of course, trends that completely obscure individual stories within those groups because statistical research by nature deals mainly in trends. And one of the many trends within educational research is that sometimes race and ethnicity wind up serving as proxy for socioeconomics. And in Asian American populations, where poverty is highest, for example among Hmong Americans overall, who have a 27% poverty rate, and taken as a group, academic achievement among Hmong American students tends to lag behind that of other ethnic groups. This may have something to do with how the majority of Hmong immigrants to the United States came as refugees from the U.S. war in Vietnam, specifically where it spilled over into Laos, where a much higher proportion of Chinese-American students today hail from highly educated families who immigrated during the 1960s when the visa process specifically focused on recruiting immigrants from highly privileged, affluent, and educated families, 
Today, the children and grandchildren of many of these Chinese-American families are academically high-achieving, which should come as no surprise since, as we detailed in the last episode, the single biggest predictor of academic success is the educational attainment of your parents. Again, though, these are trends. Every family's story, every person's story is unique. And even trends have complex stories behind them. And the narratives I just described do not even begin to capture the full story of Asian and Pacific Islander Americans, let alone even the full story of Chinese Americans' experience of public education. For this episode, I thought I would chronicle some of that story in more detail, starting back to the first Chinese immigrants to the United States back in the 19th century. The mid-1800s were difficult times in China. The Qing Dynasty was falling apart. The Opium War had handed the Chinese government a humiliating defeat and a grim realization that the British and other foreign powers could pretty much do whatever they wanted to the Chinese people. Bad economic times drove many enterprising Chinese men to venture beyond the borders of their home country. And the California Gold Rush of 1849 brought about 25,000 of them to the United States. Unfortunately for them, restrictive laws passed by white Americans quickly limited Chinese immigrants' access to all of that sweet gold. And while a few did strike it rich, most wound up becoming manual laborers, first on plantations and in the fishing industry, and later particularly on the construction of the Central Pacific Railroad. In community after community, Chinese immigrants endured a painful process of hard, dangerous, and underpaid work that, once finished, more often than not resulted in their rapid unemployment and or in white mobs staging violent driving outs that forced them to relocate to other communities. These incidents of violence were not isolated acts of deviant racism, but orchestrated by formal and organized coalitions like the Working Man's Party of California, or WPC, which, fearing competition for jobs, campaigned relentlessly against Chinese immigrants. When white mobs were incited to violence, police more often than not stood back and just let it happen. As it was almost impossible for a Chinese-born person to become an American citizen, the early Chinese Americans had little recourse as white Americans passed law after law to limit their ability to work and spread vicious propaganda about how Chinese people spread diseases and engaged in all manner of sexual perversions. So what happened was that Chinese Americans wound up forming their own advocacy networks, finding legal loopholes and unfair contracts, and helping out-of-work and driven-out countrymen find new employment. This was all the more imp impressive, given how incredibly difficult it was for Chinese Americans to become full citizens, thanks to multiple legislative acts restricting that privilege to white Americans, and after the Civil War, freed African Americans as well. But even the so-called birthright citizenship that emerged in the wake of the 13th and 14th Amendments was not extended to Chinese Americans until 1898 in the U.S. Supreme Court case United States v. Wong Kim Ark. So Chinese Americans had to get really, really creative when it came to using the few legal tools that were available to them to fight for their rights. Now, we're going to be talking a lot about California in this episode, simply because it's, it's where the most Chinese immigrants settled. And it was also the first place to pass a Chinese exclusion law in 1858. This law was declared unconstitutional, but by 1882, the Federal Chinese Exclusion Act became the law of the land. And among other things, it banned Chinese laborers, skilled or unskilled, from entering the United States, and in doing so became the first American law to ban an entire race from immigration. Since there remained a provision for Chinese immigrants who could prove they were related to U.S. citizens, networks of Chinese Americans found ways to forge documents to facilitate the arrival of so-called paper sons and paper daughters to the USA. 
These new immigrants, when they could, joined their fellows as these networks coalesced around neighborhoods called Chinatowns in major cities that formed nexuses of support. By 1870, there were over 64,000 Chinese in the United States, over a thousand of which were now children, which meant that education was swiftly becoming a new priority for Chinese Americans to figure out. In the late 1800s, there was not yet anything like a universal right to public education, and what publicly funded schools did exist at the time banned African Americans, Native Americans, and Mongolians, the erroneous category under which white lawmakers grouped Chinese people, as almost no actual ethnic Mongolians were living in the United States at the time from attending. California did, however, pass a law back in 1864 that permitted ethnic Chinese children to attend schools, but allowed white families a veto power on their attendance. Just four years later, however, the state passed another law denying state funding to any schools where ethnically Chinese children were enrolled. So that pretty much put the kibosh on things for a while. Then, two years later, the state passed yet another law, creatively titled the California School Law, that said, okay, non-white children can attend public schools, but they have to be separate schools. You know that whole separate but equal thing? Yet even here, the law specified that those separate schools would be for African Americans and Native Americans, no mention whatsoever of Chinese or even of Mongolians for that matter. So in practice, it was still next to impossible for a Chinese American child to attend a publicly funded and operated school. Take a moment to understand what that means, that for 14 years, from 1871 to 1885, Chinese American children were the only racial group in the United States to be denied the right to a state-funded education. Of course, Chinese American families who had the means could still find some private schools that they could send their children to, and less well-off families could always send their kids to missionary schools, as long as they reconciled themselves to a healthy dose of Christian indoctrination in the process. Although it's hard to get firm numbers on it, many Chinese parents simply homeschooled their kids using traditional Confucian methods from their home country. Still, a lot of Chinese American kids were unable to access an education that was freely available in some form or another to all of their countrymen, and the Chinese communities, helped to be certain by some progressive white and African American allies, demanded that this state of affairs change. Their first high-profile battle came in 1884, when a Chinese American couple named Joseph and Mary Tape sued the San Francisco Board of Education when their daughter Mamie was denied admission to a white public primary school. The Tates argued their case both under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which previous Supreme Court cases established apply to Chinese Americans, and also on the basic premise that, hey, they were paying property taxes, and that went towards schools, so by God, their kids should be able to attend one too. The transcripts from the case, Tape versus Hurley, Hurley being the school principal, are pretty brutal to read. At one point, school officials describe Mamie as a child with, quote, filthy and vicious habits, suffering from contagious and infectious disease, end quote, and when her parents went ahead and got a doctor to examine her and sign off that her health was just fine, thank you, the superintendent responded with a vague excuse that, well, Mamie still couldn't attend because it was just, quote, necessary, unquote, to keep Chinese children out of schools that white children attended. When confronted with issues of constitutionality, the superintendent's reply was that such measures were, quote, unconstitutional, but necessary, end quote. 
Fortunately, the state Supreme Court called all appropriate BS on that argument and ordered the schools to admit Chinese-American students, at which point the San Francisco School Board basically said, wait, wait, can we still do that separate but equal thing? They could and did, and thus was born, in 1885, the Chinese Primary School, the first segregated school in the United States specifically for Asian-American children. It was renamed the Oriental Public School in 1907, when Japanese and Korean children were also remanded to its auspices. Chinese-American schools, though, were in short supply, to say the least, beyond the boundaries of certain California communities like San Francisco. So what about Chinese-Americans in the rest of the country? That was indeed the question, as the Jim Crow era expanded and flourished in the early 20th century. Segregated America had constructed this whole architecture around the racial dichotomy of white versus black, and Chinese Americans did not fit neatly into either of those categories. As a result, Chinese Americans had to deal with a dizzying array of state and local laws, and as just one example, I'll pick the year 1927 and the state of Mississippi, where two court cases attempted to settle that very question. Bond v. Tige Fung was a state Supreme Court case where a 14-year-old boy, Zhou T. Lun, sued for the right to attend the white public school in Dublin, Mississippi. Since he was not a native-born American, but rather born in China, he argued that under the terms of a major treaty between China and the United States that was signed way back in 1868, known as the Burlingame Treaty, he had the right to attend school. The relevant passage from the treaty was Article 7, that, quote, citizens of the United States shall enjoy all of the privileges of the public educational institutions under the control of the government of China, and reciprocally, Chinese subjects shall enjoy all of the public educational institutions under the government of the United States, which are enjoyed in their respective countries by the citizens or subjects of the most favored nation, unquote. In other words, the treaty guaranteed Joan education, and since there was no school nearby except that white school, well, hey, that's the school he was guaranteed to be able to attend, right? Well, the Mississippi Supreme Court, after some hemming and hawing about state sovereignty over its public schools in defiance of any treaty, and I'm not a constitutional law scholar, but doesn't Article 4's Supremacy Clause basically say that any treaty the Senate passes has the authority to do just that? eventually decided that any education the state may or may not have owed Joe had to take place in a Negro school. The majority opinion rested upon a defense of segregation. Quote, the dominant purpose of the Constitution in providing for the separation of the races was to preserve the purity and integrity of the white race and prevent amalgamation, and to preserve as far as possible the social system of race segregation. Unquote. Wow, it doesn't get much more openly racist than that. The opinion continues that, quote, We also hold that the Chinaman was entitled, under the law, to all the benefits of a colored public school, unquote. In response to any and all arguments that such a school was inferior, the court ruled, and again I quote, It cannot be said that any child may, because of some fancied inequality in the conduct of the schools, force himself into a school which, under the Constitution, he is not entitled to enter, end quote. As if that wasn't enough. The opinion even offers a chastisement to the plaintiff for his alleged pretensions, reading, quote, Under the Constitution of the United States and the state of Mississippi, the Negro is an American citizen, and the law accords him that right. Then, how can an alien Chinaman complain when he is assigned to a school provided under our law for the colored races? We thus permit him to share with our own American citizens our benefits and privileges, and enjoy all of the benefits and privileges accorded to one of our own citizens. Unquote. How very generous. 
That same year, another case in Mississippi rose to the U.S. Supreme Court. Martha Lum, a nine-year-old Chinese-American citizen, was banned from attending the Rosedale Consolidated High School in Bolivar County, Mississippi, because of her Chinese descent. The USC decided, unanimously, that so long as Negro schools existed in the state, Lum needed to attend one of those, even if it wasn't in her home district. The majority opinion was written by none other than Chief Justice and former U.S. President William Howard Taft. This case is interesting for several reasons, not the least of which was its use as precedent to shut down Chinese Americans' attempts to attend white schools in segregated states across the country. It also established that the state, and not the individual, held the power to definitively determine the race of children for the purposes of school attendance. In other words, no matter how mixed her ancestry was, if Mississippi said Martha Lum was more Chinese than white, then boom, she was in the eyes of the law. Weirdly, even though Brown versus the Board of Education eliminated de jure segregated schools 20 years later, the provision that a student is whatever race someone at the state government decides they are was never officially struck down. Even before the Brown decision, however, the situation for Chinese Americans was about to change radically. In 1943, after decades of Chinese exclusion, the United States, in order to curry favor with its wartime ally of nationalist China during the Second World War, finally relaxed those immigration restrictions and eliminated many other anti-Chinese ordinances, including barriers to higher education. Organizations like the Lee Foundation and even various Harvard clubs began immediately raising scholarship money to help pay for the colleges and universities that they were, until now, all but banned from attending. One of the most famous of such scholars was Edmund Gong from Miami, who was publicly honored by President Truman himself in Washington, D.C., and eventually became the first Asian-American state representative in Florida's history. The first Chinese-American to sit on any state legislature, incidentally, was Wing Ong in Arizona in 1946. By the mid-1950s, very much unlike the case with African-Americans, educational restrictions on Chinese-Americans had all but vanished, at least formally. Now add to that the massive influx of highly educated Chinese families fleeing the communist revolution in their homeland during this and the following decade. These included the families of doctors, scientists, engineers, and academics, many of whom already possessed significant command of English upon their arrival. The U.S. government offered plenty of incentives for these professionals to continue a brain drain from communist China and settle here for the benefit of American progress in the Cold War against that other big communist nation, the USSR. Much of the model minority narrative surrounding Chinese Americans stems from this era onward, although it would of course be inaccurate to say that all Chinese Americans were rocking the educational world at this time. Those Chinese Americans who had come from lower socioeconomic classes or who did not arrive with strong English skills tended to not only struggle academically, but were also unable to attain housing in well-resourced communities that had the most robust public schools to offer, and thus were unable to gain entry into that self-fulfilling cycle of privileged education. In fact, one of the major Supreme Court cases that affected bilingual education policy writ large did not involve the stereotypical Spanish-speaking students, but rather native Chinese language speakers. Once again, this time the issue was in San Francisco. The year now was 1971, and the San Francisco public schools had long since been integrated. But at the time of the lawsuit, there were enrolled over 2,800 Chinese-American students who were not academically proficient in English yet fewer than half of them were receiving any supplemental English language courses to help them gain that proficiency they needed. 
Kinney Kimin Lau was a 14-year-old Chinese-American student struggling at a San Francisco high school whose parents made a connection with a public interest lawyer to hold the city schools accountable for their responsibilities under the Bilingual Ed Act, not to mention, yet again, the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. In Lau v. Nichols, the USC decided unanimously in favor of Lau and his co-plaintiffs, not so much on the basis of the 14th Amendment, but more so on Section 601 of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Since the San Francisco school system was receiving federal funding, it was therefore required to provide equal opportunities and access to all students in the form of, quote, meaningful education. And this case served as a precedent for supporting English language learners of all backgrounds over the next few decades. Chinese American students would have to overcome yet more barriers, though, in the 1980s. As Asian American attendance at colleges and universities across America continued to increase, so too did backlash for many white students, from graffiti and rallies to actual physical assaults, particularly during the period when Japan's economic ascendancy was viewed by many white American workers as a threat to their own prosperity, and a license of sorts to strike out against any and all Asian Americans. The most infamous manifestation of this was the brutal murder of Chinese-American draftsman Vincent Chin in 1982 in Detroit, who was killed at his own bachelor party by two white auto workers, who saw no problem in venting their fury at Japanese workers on him. Not that murdering a Japanese-American, or a Japanese national, or anyone, would have been any more appropriate, although apparently a court of law begged to differ. Neither assailant served any jail time for their crime. They got off with paying $3,000, a penalty characterized by the president of the Detroit Chinese Welfare Council as a, quote, $3,000 license to kill. It was in this climate that accusations began to arise that universities were instituting quiet quotas for Asian American students, as mysteriously admission rates for Asian Americans had plummeted drastically from 44% in 1979 to just 14% in 1987. Enrollment rates for Asian Americans in some universities fell over 20% within a single year during the 1980s. Asian American students with straight A's who had been rejected by college admissions committees began demanding investigations. And some schools, including those in the UCLA system, once again, we're back to talking about California, were indeed found guilty by federal prosecutors of practicing racially biased admissions policies. The Supreme Court had outlawed specific race-based quotas of any sort, either to limit or to encourage the enrollment of students of a particular race back in 1978 in the case Regents of the University of California versus Bach, although they did permit race to be one of several factors considered in the admissions process. It was on these grounds that many universities defended policies that limited the enrollment of otherwise qualified Asian American applicants in some version or another of the argument that, well, we need to maintain a diverse student body and we can't have too many of any one group. Leaving aside the fact that, number one, as discussed, Asian Americans are hardly one singular group, and number two, even today, when American college and university populations are more diverse than ever, 55% of college and university students in the United States are still white, and on some campuses, white students make up as much as 75% of the student body. So concerns about letting in too much of any one group seem somewhat selectively applied. One of the most recent major court cases to deal with the issue of Asian American students' rights to attend college and university concerned events happening literally down the street from where I sit now. At Harvard University, in 2019's federal district court case, Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard. 
This case has a lot of elements you wouldn't necessarily expect, starting with the plaintiffs, a group of anonymous Asian-American students being represented in large part by a man named Edward Blum. Edward Blum is not a lawyer, but rather a conservative political activist, the director and sole member of the Project on Fair Representation. A member of the American Enterprise Institute, Blum has made a career out of challenging affirmative action policies and played a key role in the activism that led to the 2013 Supreme Court decision that repealed key portions of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, the repercussions of which we're seeing play out today with new, more restrictive voting laws in places like Georgia, Florida, and Texas. Blum's organization spent much of the 20-teens challenging affirmative action policies at universities across the country, arguing that they imposed unfair obstacles on qualified white students from gaining admission. But the 2019 Harvard case marked the first time you organized an effort on behalf of plaintiffs of color. Said plaintiffs presented data obtained from Harvard's individualized admissions files, as well as aggregate data, to argue that Harvard was in fact imposing soft racial quotas that discriminated against Asian American applicants. They attempted to demonstrate how the percentage of Asians admitted to Harvard was suspiciously similar year after year, despite dramatic increases in the number of Asian American applicants and the size of the Asian American population. They presented cases where Asian American applicants scored higher than applicants of any other racial or ethnic group on other admissions measures like test scores, grades, and extracurricular activities. But when it came down to this very nebulous category called personal ratings, such candidates were marked severely down, and that this happened more frequently when official Harvard admissions officers, as opposed to volunteer alumni interviewers, gave such ratings, which would seem to indicate, they argued, some sort of company policy of racism at work. Thanks to those mysterious personal ratings, Asian-American applicants wound up having the lowest chance of admission of all racial groups in the United States, despite scoring highest in many other objective measurements. Removal of that score, they argued, would result in something like a 16% increase in the number of admitted Asian Americans at Harvard. The data for this claim, incidentally, came in part from an internal investigation that Harvard had made in 2013, but had not released to the public. Harvard, for its part, denied any racial bias or prejudice, and pointed to the disproportionate enrollment of Asian Americans versus their representation in the general population as proof. They also attacked the plaintiff's statistical modeling in ways that I won't get into here because, to be honest, I'm not sure I entirely follow it. In October 2019, federal district court judge and Boston native Allison Dale Burroughs ruled in favor of Harvard. While the system is, quote, not perfect, she ruled, and did, quote, use the racial makeup of admitted students to help determine how many students it should admit overall, end quote, since such practices did not meet the standard of actual numeric quotas, they were allowed to continue. The case was appealed and lost and is currently headed for the U.S. Supreme Court. So the next chapter of this particular story will likely play out sometime over the next year or two. As many episodes of this podcast have detailed, the experience of the U.S. educational system for so many Americans has been one of a constant fight for racial equity and justice, taking place as much in the courtroom as in the classroom. The model minority stereotype that afflicts so many Asian Americans, of Chinese ancestry or otherwise, can sometimes erase their struggles and their hard-earned victories from the popular conversation. The story of Chinese Americans' experience in U.S. schooling is simultaneously one of incredible success and incredible hardship, of working to excel within a system and working to change that system so opportunities to excel are even possible. Studying their experiences challenges me to, in the words of best-selling Chinese-American author Maxine Hong Kingston, 
quote, make my mind large, as the universe is large, so that there is room for contradictions, unquote. As a postscript, although it was a symbolic gesture, the San Francisco Unified School District finally repealed the regulation requiring students of Chinese and Korean heritage to attend segregated Oriental schools in 2017. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new.